Well, good morning. Last time I spoke, you weren't here. <laughs> you were all out there with the internet campus, and uh, it's great to uh, see living bodies and uh, uh, people here, and uh, what, a, what a wonderful sight. It's my privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, we finish our series called Rebuilding today. As you're turning, I want to tell you a story. Some of you may have known about that story, uh, but uh, Robert Robinson is the author of that great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. He lost a happy communion with the Savior that he had once enjoyed, and in his declining years, he wandered into the backwaters and the byways of sin. As a result, he became deeply troubled in spirit, and, and hoping to uh, relieve his mind, he decided to travel. In the course of those journeys, he became acquainted with a young Christian woman who was sitting across from him in a coach, who asked him what he thought of the hymn that uh, she had just been reading and humming. To his astonishment, he found it to be none other than one of his own compositions, Come Thou Found. He tried to evade her question, but she continued to press him for a response, and suddenly he began to weep. With tears streaming down his cheeks, he said, I, I'm the man who wrote that hymn many years ago. I'd give anything to experience again the joy that I knew then. And although greatly surprised, she assured him of those streams of mercy that he mentions in that song, Never Ceasing, all for songs of loudest praise. Mr. Robinson was deeply touched and turned his wandering heart back to the Lord and was restored to full fellowship. Backsliding, as uh, Bible teachers years ago called it, slipping away or sliding away or apostasy, as some would call it in one technical sense of that term, is a uniquely biblical term depending on your translation. For example, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2.19, God says, you, you, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. Jeremiah 3 verse 22 goes on to say, return you backsliding children <clears throat> and I will heal your backsliding, says the Lord. Last week, from Nehemiah chapter 10, Pastor Cody uh, surfaced three commitments that were needed by the people in Nehemiah's day and are still needed by us. Excuse me. <coughs> Submission to the word of the Lord, separation from the ways of the world, and support for the work of God. Evidently, Nehemiah served two uh, governorships in Judah with a break in between. We don't know how long uh, Nehemiah was gone, but it was long enough for both the leadership and the people to backslide, to slip back into their old ways of sinning and forsake the very covenant of obedience that they had signed and literally signed, as we learned last week. Oswald Chambers wrote this. <coughs> Excuse me. Today, uh, the world has taken so many things out of the church, and the church has taken so many things out of the world, it's difficult to know where you are. 
I pray that that would never be true of Christ, a Christ Chapel Bible Church. With Nehemiah 13, we come to the last chapter, ironically, of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, because uh, when you come to the end of the historical books, the poetical books and the prophetical books all fold back into that history from Genesis down to Nehemiah. But at the end of the Old Testament, at the end of our Old Testament history, at the end of this book, Nehemiah, we find Nehemiah as a leader still fighting for renewal and revival to the very end. Strong and courageous leadership is always needed, but uh, we can be confident it'll also be remembered by God. Three times in this section, as you let your eyes move down through that chapter, Nehemiah prays to be remembered by God for his efforts to promote revival of God's people. Malachi was a prophet that was a contemporary of Nehemiah, and his prayer for God, Nehemiah's prayer for God to remember, is probably taken from the idea in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16, which says this, just listen to it. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. The Bible talks about God having a set of books, uh, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, a, a book that records our works, and Malachi's references to a, a book that God, in essence, writes himself, keeping track of your obedience and mine. Nehemiah being a contemporary of Malachi, that final prophet of the Old Testament, probably has that idea in mind when he's saying, Lord, would you please remember me? I'm working on this. <laughs> I'm working with these people and I'm trying to stay as faithful as I can. Please remember me. The Hebrew Christians, to the Hebrew Christians, the New Testament author, and I've often said, I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, if I had written a book as stern as the book of Hebrews, I wouldn't have signed my name either. It's a very challenging book to those early Christian Jews. But uh, here's the warning. Look at it with me as it'll come up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Lest you and I think we're out of the woods on this. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, watch these terms, an evil and an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away, backslide, slip away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. Notice the need. As long as it is still called today, in other words, as long as you and I still have the opportunity, so that none of us, none of you, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you've walked with the Lord for very long, and even for those of us who have walked with him for a long time, we understand the potential of uh, taking a hike, walking off the reservation of our commitment, so to speak, and getting ourselves in trouble. In our thought life, in our practice, in our daily life, a loss of devotion, a loss of prayer, a loss of fellowship, a venture into a sin we never would have expected to bother us, whether it be mental or physical. We know that potential danger our pastors and our elders have been leading us in this unusual season to understand the importance of our church meeting together 
as an internet campus, in our services live and in our small groups. Why? Because that's God's remedy for slipping and sliding away. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me on the screen for a moment, and let us consider, he says, what's the remedy for this? Let's consider how to stir up one another, watch the terms, to love and good works, <coughs> excuse me, not neglecting meeting one another as the habit of some. It might be, have to be on Zoom, it may be in person, but meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you, in the words plural there, as you all see the day drawing near. What's God's remedy for slippage? Are you ready for us? It's us, encouraging each other to stay true to the Lord. That's where Nehemiah was. He's a model leader who had a passion of stirring up that revival and renewal that would be sustained, for which he prayed and for which he wanted to be remembered. So uh, in the spirit of Nehemiah, if you'll look at your sermon notes, I want you to join me in a prayer that I have coming out of this week and a prayer that I hope you will have coming out of this week, and that is that uh, we would want God to remember us for the same reasons that Nehemiah wanted God to remember him. So I want to suggest four from this passage. In the spirit of Nehemiah, I want God to remember me for number one, <clears throat> for being zealous for the worship as God intended. For being zealous for worship as God intended. Verses one to three of this chapter, which is not a part of our passage this morning, is of a, uh, a revival that came as the result of the word of God. But before that happened, Nehemiah says, let me tell you what happened before then. And as I read through this passage in each section this morning, I want you to listen or look at the verbs of action that reveal the passion of Nehemiah's leadership. Verse four, now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, <clears throat> prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandments of the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, Nehemiah says, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked for leave from the king, and came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that this priest, Eliashib, had done for Tobiah preparing for him a chamber in the, in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw out the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and I gave orders that they cleanse the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. As we've seen throughout the book of Tobiah, of the, this book, <coughs> excuse me, Tobiah had been a discouraging element, a discouraging nemesis to the welfare of Israel, and the people of God as they sought to rebuild the temple and as Nehemiah sought to rebuild the people. Yet while Nehemiah was away, Eliashib the priest invited his relative Tobiah, who was an enemy of all of the things of God in this book, and gave him a cushy chamber right in the temple complex designed as a storehouse for the temple offerings and sacrifice. In essence, 
Eliashib prepared a comfortable chamber in God's temple for an ungodly man. Don't miss this. That's a mix-up that creates a mess-up. We'll come back to that theme a little later. Another problem was that the other leaders evidently weren't too bothered by what Eliashib had done with Tobiah. But when Nehemiah gets back, he's not a happy camper, to say the least. And he saw the dangers of allowing Tobiah's influence and presence and its compromising influence. Nehemiah's proactive response teaches us a couple of quick lessons that we dare not miss. One is a negative and one is a positive. The, the negative is we need to refuse to compromise with a culture. A compromise with a culture that uh, is in opposition, in contrast to us and at times against us. Compromise can be a good thing and compromise can be a bad thing. In a positive sense, a compromise can be good and when you come to terms on a contract or when you're gonna merge <clears throat> two businesses or two enterprises. Obviously, a, a marriage uh, takes compromise between two personalities where you come, as uh, my friend Dennis Rainey says, with two box tops on two big puzzles of a thousand pieces and you dump 2,000 pieces on the table and then whose box top is gonna to fit the picture? And the answer is neither one. That's gonna take work, as you know, to make a marriage work. A professional sports contract, that, that you come to a compromise on the figures, all, all that's good. But compromises also can be a negative dilution rather than a positive solution. A compromised immune system in health is not good. Oil spills in the Gulf are not good. Waste seepage in a broken water line. We all know what that's about more recently. There's a story of a New York family who bought a ranch out here in Texas and they intended to raise cattle and friends visited and asked if the ranch had a name. Well, said the cattleman, I, uh, I wanted to name it the Bar J. My wife favored Susie Q. One son liked Flying W and the other one wanted Lazy Y. So we're calling it the Bar J Susie Q Flying Way with Flying W Lazy Y Ranch. The friend says, I, I don't see any cattle. And he said, they didn't survive the branding. <laughs> see, compromise obviously can be dangerous. There's a big difference between peacemaking and an unwholesome compromise with evil. Sometimes compromise comes from not standing up against a family member, like in Eliashib and Tobiah's case. A friend, a roommate, a date, or a business partner, those who may not share your biblical commitment or have not yet come to faith, or maybe they even oppose the very standards of God's word. There's danger to compromise there. In fact, the very word compromise means coming with two promises. In the negative sense, it means promising two incompatible allegiances. It's the attempt to, to, to serve two masters and we know what Jesus said about that, it doesn't work. A second response needed is a positive one. Not only do we dare not compromise in our worship with the world, but uh, we need to pursue genuine worship as intended by Christ. For each of these uh, points in the outline, I'm going to start with Nehemiah in the Old Testament, but I'm gonna give you a New Testament principle that is more uh, closely aligned to what we face as a church. Resolve to pursue a genuine worship as intended by Christ. Jesus, in uh, his conversation with a Samaritan woman, 
said, God is spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. For such worshipers the Father seeks. When you and I worship in spirit, that means when my spirit aligns with the Holy Spirit, when my heart is parallel with God's heart, that's worshiping in spirit. Worshiping in truth is doing worship God's way in accordance with God's word. When my will gets parallel to God's word, Jesus exposed the duplicity of the Pharisees when he quoted Isaiah 29, 13, and he said, because of this, the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their heart is far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, they've so twisted the scriptures that they've ended up substituting their traditions for the scriptures. So I have a question with number one. When God thinks of you, does he recognize your zeal for worship his way? Does he recognize your zeal for true worship in spirit and in truth? It's a question of thought for us today. Number two, in the spirit of Nehemiah, I, I want God to remember me and I want God to remember us as a church for staying faithful in our support of the ministry and its faithful leadership. Look what else Nehemiah found as he came back to Jerusalem, beginning in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work each fled to his own field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the wine and the oil in the storehouses, and I appointed the treasurers over the storehouses uh, Shalimia, the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant Hanan, and the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Here comes that remember me, verse 14, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. I want you to see two things here. One is the faithful support of leadership. Notice the series of the action verbs. It's a good model of leadership and problem solving as we've seen with Nehemiah earlier in this book. But listen to a New Testament correlation. In Old Testament times, the Levites and the priests had not been cared for, and they uh, went back to their own place in their own fields and, and, and tried to uh, you know, make a living of their own when God had intended them to be supported by the tithes and offerings of the people. That's true in the New Testament as well. So look at this New Testament application for the church that's really an illustration of the Old Testament model for the temple. Again, these are in your notes. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You see, there's, there's the faithful support of leadership. And I have been a part of this church for probably going on 12 years and uh, I've been pleased to watch your generosity has been shared from this pulpit by our pastors, Pastor Ted and now Pastor Cody, 
But over the years, the, the, the kind of commitment that this church has made to ministry of watching God work not only here but around the world, and you keep hearing Sunday after Sunday what's going on out there, but uh, you and I who are not a part of the pastoral staff can step back and say how glad we are that we're taking care of our leadership and taking care of our team who uh, support the ministry here from every position of leadership. And we're going to see how sacred that leadership is in a moment. But uh, you and I give as an act of faithfulness to support godly leadership in our church. It was true of the temple days. It's to be true of church days. But not only is it faithful support of leadership, but it's faithful service that's recognized by leadership. As he says in here, these are men who were reliable. People who were reliable were put in charge of the tasks. And part of the work of continuing revival is uh, putting people who are, have people of, of integrity in positions of leadership. Nehemiah discovered the need, he confronted the problem, he established uh, the, the team, he appointed reliable leadership, he implemented the plan. And so in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 14, he says, God, don't forget, I was as faithful as I could be to covenant faithfulness. In fact, he uses a term that's used of God his loving kindness that's covenant-keeping God. Nehemiah said, I have been a covenant-keeping man. God, don't forget what we're trying to do here with this. It was his way of praying a recommitment of his own heart by asking God to remember him. So I have a second question. When, when God thinks of you, like Nehemiah said, God, don't forget what I'm doing for the cause, would you say, God, would you remember me because of my faithful support of godly leadership or my participation as a godly leader? God, would you remember me? Could you pray that prayer this morning? God, you know how faithful I am and how supportive I am of this ministry. That ought to be a prayer you and I could pray. It's convicting, so let's keep moving. Let's go to number three. In the spirit of Nehemiah, I also want God to remember me for keeping the priorities for which God established the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant and a celebration of God's creation. Listen to it in verses 15 to 22. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine and grapes and figs, all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians, people from Tyre, who lived in the city, brought fish and all kinds of goods, sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act this way and did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be made on the Sabbath. And then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it again, I'll lay hands on you. Nehemiah was a tough guy. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
Remember this also in my favor, O Lord my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now let me throw one at you for us to think about that God has sort of been working me over with over the last couple of weeks in preparation for this. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was commanded as a recognition that God rested on the seventh day of creation. It became a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, as we see in Exodus, but it, it celebrated that God had finished working in creation, and therefore our rest was in, their rest was in commemoration and memory of that. When you come to the New Testament and you read the New Testament, it's not the seventh day that becomes sacred. In fact, it's not a command, but the Sunday becomes the day of celebration because of the resurrection. But I want you to see a passage in Hebrews because the reason the day was recognized in the Old Testament was for the work of God in creation, but the reason for which that day is recalled in the New Testament is to remember the work of Christ in redemption. Look at Hebrews 4.10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just like God did from his. God resting from his works was an example for us to rest from our works, but in the context of Hebrews, and as Paul goes on to talk about in his epistles, we can worship every day, as you saw announced. We can have Easter celebration on Saturday, and we can have Easter celebration on Sunday. Uh, we can have Tenebrae on Friday, we can have uh, a Seder on Thursday. Uh, every day is holy to the Lord. So don't miss this. If every day is a rest day, every day, Hebrews says, is a Sabbath day, then every day in our lives ought to be the Lord's day. And do you and I profane any of those days, or do we treat all of those days as holy? Even the gatekeepers had to purify themselves to keep the gates closed. There's no place of service that's not sacred in service to the Lord. And so he rebuked the nobles, he locked the gates, he ran out the merchants, he reminds the people it was for the neglect that caused Israel's captivity, was the profaning of the Sabbath year. And that determined the amount of time they would spend in Babylon, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. So I have a question. When God thinks of us, when God thinks of you, will he see that you and I have been intentional, listen carefully, in protecting all that is necessary and prohibiting all that is unnecessary to make every day a holy day to the Lord. We come together on the first day of the week as the New Testament believers did, celebration of resurrection and life in Christ. When I read my New Testament, every single day is a holy day. And every single day ought to be protected as a holy day. And every single day we ought to prohibit anything in that day that would profane that day as not a day of the Lord. Let's think about that as we continue to walk with him. And finally, number four, in the spirit of Nehemiah, I want God to remember me for standing strong to promote and practice faith-founded marriages. In 23 to 31, listen to it, in those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. By the way, that's a no-no. <laughs> 
And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Watch these verbs again. I confronted them, and I cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. You're going to ask, what application should we make of that? And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? And among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. <coughs> Excuse me. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him sin, even him. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the other, uh, the, the, the Horonite, uh, the Horonite who, who uh, like Tobiah, had been an enemy of God's people and their, per- and their purposes. Therefore, I chased him from me. Now, he says, remember them, O God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Then I cleansed them from every foreign, everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offerings in the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Again, we see these incredible words of action. Leaders take initiative to address problems and take necessary steps to correct problems that work against the purposes of God. Why? Because, number one, an effect on children. In his survey of Jerusalem, he saw women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab married to these Jewish men. But the problem was their children don't speak the language. If the children don't know the language of Israel, how could they read or listen to the law and participate in the holy services? How important did Nehemiah think this was? You can look back at verse 25. Ironically, years earlier, for the same reason, Ezra had plucked out his own hair and his own beard in Ezra 9.3, but here, Nehemiah goes so far to pluck out the the hair of the beards of some of his offenders. I'm not suggesting we go that far. Let me ask you the question, how far would you go to fight for your marriage, to fight for your kid's marriage, to fight for your son or your daughter's marriage to a godly person? I recognize that some of you come into this relationship neither of you having been a believer, one of you becoming a believer, and you could be unequally yoked in that situation, and God has a way to work through that. But as a believer, going into an unholy marriage is another issue. Warren Wearsby asked the question, if a generation is lost to the faith, what'll be the future of the nation? So in order to have lasting results, reform and revival constantly require the strength and the courage of the Lord to maintain the Lord's priority. The example of compromise here is that uh, he goes back to Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, unbelievable leader, God's choice for a leader, and it was his divided heart that ultimately cost a divided nation. In the New Testament, Paul warns, as we come to a New Testament example, of the incompatibility of mixing the life of God with the life of the world. Well, it applies to marriage. It's not just confined to marriage. It relates to business partners, the music that you listen to, the entertainment that you uh, attend, the social media conversations that you have, every area of our lives. Can I ask you a question? Are you listening to the world or are you listening to God? Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked. 
Don't be mismatched, literally. It comes out of putting one ox that was not, in, was not compatible with another ox in the same yoke. Don't be unevenly matched or unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he asks a series of questions, and these are very graphic terms, and that's why I had you put them in your notes. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does God have with Belial, Christ have with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? These are all rhetorical questions, they're obvious answers. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they will be my people. So let me give you some reminders to remember so your matchups don't become mix-ups because that ends up as mess-ups. He says, don't be unequally yoked. Why? Righteousness and unrighteousness don't make good partners. He's giving you the principles that underlie the relationships. They don't make good partners. They don't have the same share, if I could say it that way. That's the word that underlies that. Number two, light and darkness do not experience fellowship. That's the word koinonia. There's nothing in common between light and darkness. Number three, I put it this way, Jesus and Satan do not sing duets. The term is symphonia in the Greek text. What agreement, what, what symphony? They can't sound things together. Satan and Belial, or, or Jesus and Belial, another term for Satan, they don't sing duets together. Believers and unbelievers have nothing meaningful in common. You need to understand that. If you, as a believer, marry an unbeliever, if you, as a believer, dating an unbeliever, if you, as a, a, a believer, having a business relationship with another believer, the only level that you have anything common is at the level of the flesh, not at the level of the spirit. And the mindset on the flesh, Paul says, is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Those two don't go together. The living God and idols don't stand together. Literally, that's what it means. They can't stand in the same temple. Now listen, I didn't put it in your notes, but I want you to listen. Listen to how the passage continues. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Listen, listen to me carefully as I quote. Life in Christ is a family affair. Can you take the rest of your spiritual family into the relationships that you're courting in your life? Would the rest of the believing community enjoy that same song? Would they say the same thing on social media? Would they watch the same movies? Would they go to the same places? Do they talk the same language? Or would others in your spiritual family say that doesn't sound like life at all? Are you singing the music of life or are you singing the music of death? What is it that's catering to your soul? Strong and courageous leadership is essential to restore and promote revival among the people of God, and that leadership starts with us. Listen to Henry Blackaby. He says, revival is when God's people return to God and God returns to them, and everyone sees the difference. 
Will you be known as a person of faith, as a part of God's family? And will family values represent all that you do every day in every way? Anne Graham Lotz, a friend of ours, says it this way. She's echoing old Gypsy Smith, the evangelist of yesteryear. Revival begins when you draw a circle around yourself and make sure everything in that circle is right with God. It starts with you. It starts with me. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I uh, have been intimidated to preach this message because uh, of how you've worked me over in these last number of weeks about the every days of my life in the every ways of my life. Could I actually ask you, Lord, don't forget this day. I did it your way. Don't forget tomorrow. I'm going to do it your way tomorrow. Could I be so bold as to share that spirit of Nehemiah? Lord, I pray if uh, we can't, that we draw that circle around ourselves and start with us and say, Lord, revive me again. Because those mercies are new every morning because of your faithfulness. And Father, I pray that if there's one or more that are listening to this that haven't started doing life your way because they've not accepted your son as their savior, that in faith this morning they would say, Lord, that's what I want. I want a life with you. I accept what your son did on the cross for my sin so that I could have forgiveness. And I ask that you would uh, lead me in this family life this family values that are described by your word, we pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name.